If you are visiting with us here for the first time, uh, we are nearing the conclusion of our series in the book of Ephesians. It has been a wonderful journey. And the theme throughout the book has been this concept, this two-word concept, in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? And if you recall, the very first three chapters were doctrinal. They were theological in nature, and these last three chapters are very practical. Paul now takes his teachings, the doctrines that he expounded upon in those first three chapters, and now he is finding practical application for each of these. And so this morning, we're going to be continuing our journey as we begin chapter 6. Next week, we will conclude by looking at the rest of chapter 6, but we're going to focus on the first nine verses. Now, I warn you in advance, even though we're only covering nine verses, it's really kind of like two sermons packed into one. So I'll try to get you out of here by two at the latest. Um, I'm joking there in case we don't want visitors to all of a sudden go, no, what did I do? How did I get here? Um, Warren Wearsby tells this story. He says, after watching a television presentation about rebellious youth, a husband said to his wife, what a mess. Where did our generation go wrong? The wife calmly answered, we had children. Um... I think a lot of generations always seem to think that the generation that uh, uh, follows them is worse than they were. I think oftentimes they fail to remember that a lot of the, the problems that subsequent generations have, well, those seeds were sown in previous generations. But the truth is, children are not the problem. Sin is the problem. And we can enact laws to help curb behavior, but laws can do nothing to change the human heart. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that. Only when a person comes to faith in Christ and and is filled with the Holy Spirit can they live the kind of life that God intended for them to live. Now, three weeks ago, I believe it was three weeks ago, we took a look at at chapter 5, and we focused a little bit on verse 21, and we learned that one of the evidences of being filled with the Holy Spirit was transformed relationships. Paul then began to expound on this, to flesh it out, and he gave us three examples or three pairs of illustrations to give us an idea of what this looks like in everyday life. And the, the first one we, we realized was when Paul says in, in verse 21, he says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ, he goes on to talk about marriage and husbands and wives. Now, this whole section from like uh, verse 22 on through 6, 9, uh, is known really as a household code. Within the Roman Greco world, there were these household codes, and this follows the pattern of many of these codes. Paul taught, for instance, that wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord, and that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And now, 
in chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, Paul's going to apply these same principles to the relationships of children and parents and servants and their masters. And so before we go any further, let's take a moment to pray. Father, we do thank you that we can gather here this morning in freedom to worship you. And Lord, to be able to hear your word. Lord, we we want more than just to hear your word. We want to respond to it in obedience. We want you to speak to us this morning that we might find points of application where we can take your word, apply it to our lives, to our situations in life, and that you would be glorified through our choices. Holy Spirit, be our teacher here this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we're going to look at this first set, or I should say, maybe second set of relationships, and that is children and parents. And, And in this next section... It's interesting that Paul starts out by addressing children. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. If you don't have your Bible, um, I will have it up on the screen. And I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, as soon as I read these first three verses, I thought, why couldn't the kids have been in here today? Uh, Last week, they had to sit through the marriage talk, right? So, but this is perfect. This is perfect. And and verse one is really very informative. Um, First, you have to understand that children were not highly valued in the Greco-Roman culture. Often, children would be laid on garbage dumps. They would be sold into slavery. Some grew up to be prostitutes and gladiators. Christians, however, highly valued children, as will become abundantly clear to you as we go through this text I like what John Stott had to say about how Christians were different and how they treated children. He says this, It was a radical change from the callous cruelty which prevailed in the Roman Empire, in which unwanted babies were abandoned, weak and deformed ones were killed, And even healthy children were regarded by many as a partial nuisance because they inhibited sexual promiscuity and complicated easy divorce. Doesn't sound too much different than our day. Consider what Jesus said, because I don't, even his disciples really were a product of their culture. And Jesus challenged them. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 13, we read, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me 
and do not hinder them, for such to, for to, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Jesus welcomed the little children. Other people saw them as a distraction. Other people saw them as not really being worthy of Jesus' time and investment, even his disciples. But Jesus says, do not forbid them to come to me. For such belongs the kingdom of, of heaven. The second reason why this is informative is, is that Paul is not just addressing young boys. Uh, we, we might not catch that at first glance, but in Paul's day, just as in some parts of the world today, girls are expendable and were expendable. So in addressing all children, Paul is actually elevating young girls to the same status as young boys, which was quite remarkable. What he's saying here is that boys and girls, men and women, are both made in the image and likeness of God and therefore are equal before him. But not only is this first verse so informative, it's actually quite instructive. It tells us that children were present during corporate worship. They were worshiping alongside their parents. You see, the New Testament letters were designed to be read to the entire congregation. And knowing this, Paul addresses children directly because he knows they are going to hear what he is about to say. So he assumes that they're going to be present. And, and really, when you stop to think about it, I, I, I mean, picture this. The children are there with the parents. The, 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 the writer gives the letter to an Aaron. He comes they read the letter to the entire congregation. Well, before they ever get to children, obey your parents in the Lord, they have to sit through five other chapters. They have to sit through the marriage talk. They have to hear all the doctrine of chapter one through chapter three. See, in our culture, that makes our head spin. We think, how in the world could they do that? It's amazing the things that children can do. If parents have their head screwed on straight, if parents have expectations that are high enough for kids to rise to the level of, but I, I can't go there to this morning. When you look at this text, I think it's helpful to us. The reason why I say it's instructive, because I think it's helpful to us when as we wrestle with what is known as integrated or intergenerational worship, because that's a big debate these days, you know, should children be in the worship service, you know, with their parents? Or should we have these specialized ministries? Well, through much of church history, children were not segregated from the rest of the congregation. They worshiped alongside their parents. It's really only been in the last hundred years or so that these specialized ministries have arisen to meet the needs of, of the modern people. And we've become so mobile. And 
parents both working in the workforce. There have been a lot of reasons why these things happened. And unfortunately, in many of the churches where, where these programs exist, it has all but effectively removed children from corporate worship, from being able to worship together with their families and other adults in the church. Um, I think one of the things that uh, still continues to amaze me is, is that a lot of times we, over the years, we have heard people say to us about like how well behaved our kids are. Now, I'm not patting myself on the back or my wife on the back, but how well behaved the kids are um, and that they, they, they talk to me. An adult says it. They, they actually talk to me and they find that odd and, and weird. And I said, well, that's because they have grown up being around adults. They've grown up having adult conversations even as a child. And so to them, it's not strange. It's not foreign. It's very, very natural for them. When I think about what this verse is, is saying here, uh, it, it raises a lot of questions for me. I'm not saying these ministries are bad because we have them here. But, but, but we understand this tension, and that's one of the reasons why on the fourth Sundays we have all the children in worshiping with us together, because we value this intergenerational worship. We think there's much to be gleaned and learned from this. But, but think about this for a minute. Before, before there, were, there was children's church, you know, the rock, student ministry, whatever you want to call it, how did people like Augustine, Calvin, Luther, Knox, Wycliffe, Edwards, Spurgeon, how did they become the spiritual giants that they became? Interesting question. How did, how did missionaries um, like uh, William Carey, Hudson Taylor, Adoniram Judson, uh, David Brainerd, and so many more end up on the mission field without it. Well, I, I think there are some good reasons why this happened. And I, and I don't have all the answers here, but, but let me posit these two things. First of all, within the early church and in subsequent generations, children were not regarded as the future of the church. They were regarded as part of the church. There's a difference. We didn't wait for them to grow up to be a part of the church. They were a part of the church. Even if they didn't know the Lord at that time, they were still a part of the community, the covenant community. And the church, by the way, have you ever wondered about this? You know, the church is regarded as a family, and for good reason. Segregating that, you know, and, and believe me, there, there are churches, there are senior churches. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those. You'd have to be a certain age, I suppose. See, you know, it's just for seniors. You got skater churches. For, you know, for, you got all sorts of different kind of churches, and it's a particular demographic. But when we look at the New Testament and we look at the church, we see that the church is made up of all sorts of people from all walks of life, of various ages, races, and, and sex, male and female, young and old. And that's the way God designed it. 
And because the church often met in homes, it was a given that children would participate in the life of the church alongside their parents. But perhaps the greatest reason that these folks grew up, all these missionaries that I mentioned, all these great preachers grew up to be passionate followers of Christ was simply this. They were discipled at home. And ideally through their dads. That's where discipleship primarily took place. Today, too many dads farm out their kids to the church or to their wives to do the discipling. But that's not the way that it has been historically. Children learn the sacred truths of Scripture and matured in the faith because their parents invested in them at home. I'm going to come back to this in a bit. But in verses 1 and 2, Paul commands children to obey and honor their parents. And the word obey is an interesting word. It literally means to hear under. And it carries this idea of hearing under the authority of another. It means to listen attentively to and to respond positively to what is heard. The word honor means to deeply value, to hold in high regard, to esteem highly. It means to show respect and love and reverence by the way we live. And one way children can do this is by having a good attitude when they're disciplined. Now, parents, you know, easier said than done right? You, you aim to discipline your kid because it's for their good, and, and what do they do? They get mad. They get angry. They stomp their feet, run upstairs, slam the door. Sometimes they'll say things like, you don't love me, or, or in some cases, I hate you, right? Some of you have experienced that. Some of you have said that. You know, the Scripture tells us that no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but it's for our good. And so one way we can honor our parents, even as our parents get much older, is to simply have a good attitude and to listen attentively. Now, Paul gives three reasons why children should obey and honor their parents. First, he says, it's right He's just saying, it's right. It's, it's the right thing to do. This, this is natural. This is the natural order of things. I mean, after all, parents give life to the kids. Notice I said parents give life. I didn't say parents give birth because I think some of you moms would object to that. But they do give life to the kids. They provide for them. They protect them. They have more knowledge and wisdom and experience than them. It's only right for children to obey their parents. There, there is a certain rightness about it. It's fascinating. Even young animals know to obey their parents. Sadly, though, some, some families operate as if Ephesians 6, 1 uh, and 2 read, parents... Obey your children, for this will keep the peace by making them happy. Right? You've seen it. Second, they're commanded to do it. It's not only right, they're actually commanded in the Ten Commandments. You go back to the Old Testament, 
It, and it's interesting because it's the first of the second set of commandments that deal with human relationships. It's the first one. It, it, it comes before, you know, murder. It comes before stealing. It comes before coveting. It's honor your father and your mother. And, and it says that, that they're commanded to do this. So obviously God thinks this is very important. So one way you honor God is by keeping the commandment of honoring your mother and your father. Third thing is it brings blessings. It brings blessings. Look what it says. It says that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now Paul is combining uh, Exodus 20, verse 12, and Deuteronomy 5, 16 here. But um, to really bring this home, I think um, referring to the parents' paraphrase is even better. I brought you into the world. I can take you out. I mean, that's, that's what I get out of when I say that, that you may live long in the land. <laughs> yeah, watch it, buddy. Seriously, Paul is, say, is not saying that if, if children obey their parents, that everything's going to be hunky-dory, everything's going to be wonderful and fine, they're going to live to a ripe old age of 120. Rather, what he's saying is, is that if you dishonor your parents, you are endangering your life. You're putting yourself in opposition to God, and that is not a place you want to be. So having addressed children, very much like he initially addressed uh, wives, he now turns his attention to the parents, and in particular, fathers, in a way similar to the way that he addressed husbands. Look at verse 4 with me. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, fathers are given two commands here, but I believe the principles apply to moms as well. The first is simply this. Do not provoke your children to wrath or to, to anger. In other words, don't rule harshly. Don't rule in your home with an iron hand and a domineering authoritarian hand that crushes the spirit of your children and causes them to lose heart. And I think the reason why Paul is primarily addressing fathers here is because I think men are more prone to do this than women are. I, I could be wrong, but I, I think that's the case. Paul feels very strongly about this. He even uh, repeats himself in Colossians chapter 3, verse 21. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. See, there's a fine line between discipline and exasperating your children. And you have to be able to read your children, understand what works for one child may not work for another child. And so you have to be able to read them. You have to be able then to, in a sense, speak their language. Growing up, um, I was exasperated a lot. Uh, I'm sure my dad did his best. He didn't know the Lord at the time. But I did not have the most joyful um, of upbringings. 
I did not have a father who was very affectionate. I, I was 25 before I remember ever hearing the words, I love you. And growing up, um, I, I just wanted dad to show up at my games. I just wanted to, to feel a connection there. And, and I remember when I um, um, turned 16, I was able to get my driver's license. And I thought, this is cool. Got my driver's license. Only problem was is my dad wouldn't let me drive. He had this thing, uh, and, I, and I love my dad, but it was don't touch my stuff. So you just didn't touch dad's stuff. And, of course, it, the car was his stuff. So it was very, very rare that I would be able to drive. Well, as I went from being 16 to 17 to 18, you know, I'm watching all of my friends driving all over the place. And they're able to take their girlfriends to the movies and, and to dinner and all of that. And I could feel within me that resentment kind of welling up and building up um, because I, I, too, had a girlfriend. Uh, at, at 19 years of age, I still was not driving, not much anyway. And, and I remember to go out on my dates, my transportation was a three-speed Huffy. And, um, and it had fenders, too. So, I mean, it wasn't even a cool-looking bike. It had touring handlebars. And it was a three-speed. It wasn't even a ten-speed. And I remember that's how I got around. Now, my girlfriend lived about an, a mile and a half, so not too far. The movie theater was less than a half mile from her house. So oftentimes, if we were to go somewhere, I'd be riding my bike, and she'd be sitting on the handlebars. Now, you can imagine how I felt when all my friends drove by in their cars and I got my girlfriend on the handlebars of a bicycle. One day, my girlfriend was at the house, and it began to rain really hard. And so I, I thought, it's probably useless, but I'm going to ask my dad if I can drive her home. My dad surprised me and said yes. But I used that as an opportunity to kind of get back to him. He said to me, he says, take her right home, come right back. So my dad is figuring 10 minutes, 15 minutes tops. I'm out for like two and a half hours. You can imagine what it was like when I got home. But, but that's what that did to me, okay? It, it, it exasperated me. It discouraged me in a lot of ways. Now, some of you may say, I think your dad was absolutely right. We'll have a talk later. Um, but that's how I felt that's how I felt. Let me give you some other ways that we can provoke our kids to wrath. Failing to remember that they're kids. Failing to remember that you were a kid. Verbally or physically abusing them. Comparing them to their siblings or other kids. Being inconsistent with discipline. Failing to demonstrate unconditional love. Pressuring them to get A's and showing displeasure when they come home with B's. Failing to express affection and to say the words, I love you. Failing to praise them for their accomplishments, no matter how small they may be. How about by overprotecting them? Or saying no when you could have said yes? Or how about having them pursue your dreams instead of their own? 
There's a lot of ways that we can provoke our kids to anger. But the second thing Paul tells fathers to do here, that, that was the negative thing. Don't provoke them to anger. This is the positive thing. Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, these are two interesting words. The word uh, discipline here literally means to train or to educate. It encompasses intellectual, moral, and religious training. It includes the use of commands and admonitions and reproof and correction and punishment. The word instruction means to warn and to teach, to correct behavior and belief, to encourage and admonish and done primarily through the teaching of the word. God's word, God's truth, the gospel is on your tongue and you're sharing it with your children. Now, bringing them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord um, is wonderful, but it's got to be in conjunction with setting an example for them because kids learn far more by observing us and imitating us my, my dad, his favorite saying was, you know, um, do as I say, not as I do. But that won't cut it as a Christian. We have to make sure that our words match our behavior because we have these little eyes watching us. And it's of utmost importance that our words match our lives. So what are they seeing when they look at your life? Now, you may have older kids, but you know what? They're still looking at you. Right, Paul? All right, they're still looking. So dads, do your kids see you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? Mom, do your kids see you submitting to your husband as to the Lord? Are they learning to value the things of God or the things of this world? Do they see you praying and reading your Bible? Is worship fellowship, and service a priority for you? Are your kids learning how to be generous givers? Are they learning to share their faith by watching you share yours? Does your speech honor God? Is your home characterized by humility and grace or by pride and self-righteousness? Are you grieving the Holy Spirit and giving an opportunity to the devil? Or are you fully submitted to the lordship of Christ? These are some important questions that we need to ask ourselves. Oh, and don't forget this. Children are also developing their view of marriage by watching yours. Um, when I was growing up, uh, real honest, I, I thought Marriage, the, the, it was normal for married couples to yell and scream all the time. To be angry. Um, and to just not be nice. I, that was the picture of marriage. I thought every marriage was, was like that. And since marriage ultimately points to the relationship of Christ in the church, what you're teaching them is so much more than just how to have a happy marriage. What you're doing is you're, you're painting a picture for them of Christ and the church. Remember, the, the first picture of God your kids will ever get is the one that you're painting for them with your lives. So having addressed 
children and parents, Paul now turns his attention to servants and masters. And, and just as children and parents were present in the congregation, so too were um, these household servants and their masters worshiping together. And so Paul addresses them. Look with me at verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Now, at, at this point, we're tempted to jump ahead to application. Because we don't live in a culture anymore where, where we have slaves and, and masters. So we want to quickly move to, to application of this in our culture. But I think if we do that, we do ourselves a disservice. We need to understand the culture in which Paul was writing if we're really to have a good grasp of how to apply this to our lives. And the first thing that we need to understand is that slavery in Paul's day was very different than slavery, let's say, here in America. Slavery here in America was primarily racial and lifelong. In Paul's day, it wasn't racial, and it wasn't often permanent. It could be permanent, but you could actually acquire your freedom. One might become a slave in a variety of ways. I've already mentioned some of them. But another way you could be a slave is just by simply volunteering to be a slave. It might be because you, you want to get out of debt. It might be because you want to better your lot in life. And um, in the first century, this, is, this statistic is amazing to me. It is estimated that perhaps one out of every two people were slaves. In the Roman Empire, that means that there were more than 60 million slaves. So as Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, he's writing to a church where basically one out of every two or maybe a third of the population of the city of Ephesus were slaves. And he's writing to a congregation that is filled with both slaves and masters. I like what John Stott said as he looked back historically upon slavery in Paul's day. He said this, they did not merely do menial work, they did nearly all the work including oversight and management in most professions. Some slaves were more educated than their owners. They could own property. They could own other slaves. They were allowed to save money to buy their freedom. And there was no slave class. No slave class existed, for slaves were present in all but the highest of economic and social strata. Gain, and, and most people gain their freedom by age 30. Now, it's under, it, it, we need to understand that because sometimes people wonder why Paul doesn't come out and just condemn slavery right out of the gate. Lionel Carson, in his book, uh, Everyday Life in Ancient Rome, said this of white-collar slaves. They were clerks, 
cashiers, bookkeepers of ancient Greece and Rome. They manned not only the lower levels of such work, but the upper as well. Banks were owned by wealthy Greek and Roman families, but the officers who were in charge of them could be slaves or freedmen. Women served as maids and hairdressers, seamstresses, nurses, and the like. And then Kaysen goes on to give several examples of people who rose up out of slavery. One of them was Governor Felix, who put Paul in prison. Another is the poet Horace and many others. Now, why does Paul say, slaves, bondservants, obey your earthly masters? Is he pro-slavery? That's what some people would say. No. God's word's clear. We're to love our neighbor, not own our neighbor. We're to treat one another the way that we want to be treated. And Paul writes elsewhere, if you can gain your freedom, by all means, do it. His ultimate purpose, however, was not social upheaval. It wasn't rebellion. It, it, it wasn't revolution. It was the proclamation of the gospel, which sets every man, woman, and child free. Paul was changing society one heart at a time. Now keep in mind, Paul's addressing believers. So both slaves and masters are present in the congregation. Paul is, I mean, can you imagine it? You're there, you're a slave, you're hearing this. You're a master, you're hearing this. And it's like you are obliterating slavery before my eyes. You're doing it from the inside out because you're proclaiming the life-changing gospel of Christ. Again, Stott says this, the gospel immediately began, even in the first century, to undermine the institution. It lit a fuse which at long last led to the explosion which destroyed it. Perhaps no greater illustration of this can be found than in the scriptures in a tiny little letter written to a gentleman by the name of Philemon. If you've never read that little book in the New Testament, you need to read it. It's an amazing little book. Philemon was a slaveholder. He was a master. And somehow, while in Ephesus, he runs into Paul, he becomes converted, and he goes back to his home in Colossae where he has a slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus apparently ran away. He may even have stolen some of the household goods. And he hides in probably the best place he could possibly have hidden, and that was the city of Rome. Rome was huge. It was cosmopolitan. No one would ever wonder if he was a freedman or, or a slave. But somehow, in God's sovereignty, Onesimus comes in contact with Paul. And Paul undoubtedly understood the importance of sharing the gospel with him and then sharing these very same truths, which, by the way... Philemon was written about the same time that Ephesians and Colossians were written. And interestingly enough, 
Onesimus and Tychicus were the two people who were given the letter to Philemon and Ephesus and Colossians to bring to those churches. So Paul presents the gospel to Onesimus. Onesimus gets saved, and Paul begins to teach him the very things we're looking at right here. And he decides, you know what we need to do? Onesimus, you need to go back to your master. You need to go back. And I'm going to write a letter to your, to your master, to your boss. You carry it with you along with these other letters. Let me just share a part of what Paul writes in Philemon, verses 15 through 17. He writes to Philemon because he's sending Onesimus back. He says, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but much more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would me. You see how the gospel planted seeds that would destroy slavery because the master could no longer look at the slave and see him as someone beneath him, but he sees him as an equal, and he treats him as such. And after a while, it became painfully obvious that we ought not have slavery. This is an amazing little book. I encourage you to read it. So how does he tell them to do this, to submit to, to, to their earthly masters? Well, he tells them to do it with fear and trembling, which is a way of saying with deep respect for authority. And he says they're to do it with a sincere heart, not way, by way of eye service as people pleasers, meaning, listen, don't just do what you're told to do when they're watching you. Do it when they're not watching you. Don't be lazy. Just don't, don't look like you're doing what you're supposed to do in order to please them, but actually please them by doing the work. And he challenges them to serve their masters fully and faithfully for these reasons. First, because, he says, you're really serving Christ. When it's all said and done, you do everything as unto the Lord, for it is the Lord Christ in whom you serve. Elsewhere we read, whatever your hand finds to do, do with all your might as unto the Lord. Second, he says, because it's God's will. Now, some of us might struggle with that. How can slavery be God's will? Listen, God cares more about the salvation of, of the human race than he does our own comforts. I think of Joseph and how he rotted in jail, was thrown into slavery, into a pit, and then was sold as a slave, and then was in jail. And yet, clearly, this was God's will. There is no sacred, secular distinction in God's economy. We have to understand that where we are, God has placed us where we are, and we are to serve him there. Thirdly, because it says they will be rewarded. God sees what we do for him and for others, and he will reward. So let's quickly just look at masters for a moment. Verse 9, 
Paul writes, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with them. With him, excuse me. That phrase, do the same to them. Do you realize how radical that statement is? Paul is writing to masters and he says, listen, do the same to them. What do you mean, Paul? It's a little bit cryptic, but he says, what do you mean? And, and I think he's telling masters to treat their slaves the way they want to be treated that they are to show them the same respect and have the same sincerity of heart that they expect from those who serve them. That's radical. And then he goes on and he says, stop your threatening. Don't be a bully. Don't intimidate those who are working for you and serving you by threatening them in any way, shape, or form so that they will do what you want them to do. And the reason that Paul gives is you too have a master in heaven and he shows no partiality to anyone. And beyond all that, he's really your brother or she's really your sister in the Lord. Treat them accordingly. Warren Wearsby said this. um, He says, the Christian faith does not bring about harmony by erasing social or cultural distinctions. Servants are still servants when they trusted Christ. Masters are still masters. Rather, the Christian faith brings harmony by working in the heart. Christ gives us new motivation, not a new organization. Both servant and master are serving the Lord and seeking to please him, And in this way, they are able to work together to the glory of God. So, as we conclude, the question that you're probably asking is, okay, how does this all apply to me? I mean, after all, I'm not a slave and I don't own any slaves, so so where do we go from here? The Apostle Paul has given us three pairs of relationships, husbands and wives, parents and children, and now slaves and their masters. But it's only with this last pair that we really have to find a modern-day equivalent. And perhaps the best application of this is the employee-employer relationship. And that's probably the one that's most pervasive for, for us as a people. So these principles will apply elsewhere, but I just want to close out by looking at this employer-employee relationship. Let me leave you with these suggestions taken from what Paul has written. By the way, these last three chapters, it's all application. It's all application. So I want you to think about this. When you think about working in the workplace, do you pray for your superiors? for your co-workers and your subordinates? If not, probably a good idea. View your workplace as a mission field. Have integrity in the workplace. Don't be lazy 
get to work on time, clock out when you're supposed to, do a full day's work. And work hard as unto the Lord. Be respectful of those in authority over you. I, I can't tell you how many times I hear stories about employees who are grumbling, complaining, bad-mouthing their bosses. That is not how you apply what we've learned here this morning. Treat those who work for you fairly and as a valuable contributor to your company's success. Don't use your authority to intimidate or bully people to do what you want especially to do something that is unethical. Treat others the way that you want to be treated, and above all else, let people see Jesus in you. Only the gospel can change a human heart and usher in the harmony in the home and in the workplace that we so desperately crave. So let's not waste time asking, uh, where did our generation go wrong? Let's allow the Spirit of God to transform our lives and our relationships so as to glorify God and point other people to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for your word and the many admonitions that are in it. Father, I pray that we would take it to heart and that we would find other ways in which to apply these truths to our lives. Lord, we, we thank you for our, our children. We thank you that they are a part of your church. Would you help us as mothers and fathers, and even as members of one family, one to another, to, to help raise our kids and those kids that are a part of this church and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, that they might come to love you, to serve you. And uh, Father, we pray for relationships in the workplace, that you would give us opportunities to share what you have done for us in transforming our hearts. And may they come to know you as we know you. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.